This week on Writers, Inc. And as to sort of the characters, they're there from the start. I mean, you know, I know Alex Ryder very well. I grew up with Bond. I've uh, ditto Sherlock Holmes. So these are characters who are very close to me. And I don't have to sit down and puzzle about them. I think that a character speaks to you. I think that's the only best way I can put it. I don't create the character. The character tells me about himself or herself. And if that sounds pretentious, because I don't like writers who say, oh, my characters are out of control. I never know what they're going to do. That's not true. I know everything my character's going to do, but only because I know them so well. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. JD, I hear you got another, uh, you got a, a horror uh, screenplay in the works. Dude, okay. It's on, it's on Daffy Duck. Six words uh, for you. Uh, I, I never thought that this would happen. Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. Uh, <laughs> a, a legit horror movie based on Winnie the Pooh. Um, now, I, I sent you the trailer because, like, somebody sent this to me, and I thought that they were they were messing with me. I thought it was like an early <laughs> April Fool's joke or something, but but it, it's for real. Um, so anybody listening, go out there, go on YouTube, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. Um, the reason I wanted to bring this up, though, and, and how this happened is Winnie the Pooh, the books, they're, they're coming out of copyright. They're, they're going into public domain, or they already have. Um, and these guys just jumped all over it. They literally filmed a horror movie based on Winnie the Pooh, Christopher Robbins, and, and, and the entire cast. Um, they filmed it within 10 days from what I was reading in, um, in, I think in the UK somewhere. Um, you know, they, obviously they had to steer clear of certain things. You know, Disney has a particular image for Winnie the Pooh. So they, they couldn't use like the red vest and, you know, that particular look. But you know, if you, if you ever go back and read the original books, they're, they're very different than what Disney did. Um, but there's a lot of stuff like this that's coming out of copyright, you know, over the next, you know, 10, 20 years or so. And, you know, this just being one of them. Um, so it's, you know, it just shows like, you know, as an author, what you need to do that to really try and protect your your stuff um you know because most of us tend to default back to you know that you, you fall on the normal copyright law i think it's what 50 years after you die or 150 years after you die i, I forget um i know if it's a you're using a pen name it's 75 years after the the publication um and, and it's different in certain countries um but there's ways around that and a lot of authors don't realize that um, the the easiest way and you obviously need to talk to a professional on this but a lot of authors now are creating trusts and they're they're filing their copyright under the trust um so as long as the trust itself is, is in existence. It doesn't actually matter if the author passes away or not. Um, and this is why it's important. You know, something like Winnie the Pooh generates a ton of money. Um, you know, Tom Clancy, they're running through this, the same problem right now with, with Jack Ryan. You know, like there's there were certain clauses in some of the film contracts that allow those film studios to continue the Jack Ryan story, even though Tom Clancy is no longer around to, to sign off on it. Um, and his family, you know, who technically own the rights that have no real say in, in, in what happens. Um, and, you know, it, it's one or two sentences in that contract. So these kind of things slip through. But, um, yeah, Winnie the Pooh, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. I'll be taking my daughter to see that one for sure. <laughs> I, I saw the trailer for that weeks ago. We were kind of talking before and I didn't know what you guys were talking about. And now I get it. But when I saw that trailer weeks ago, I did not think it would turn into JD giving legal advice on Writers Inc. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's kind of it's kind of crazy how things turn out sometimes. Well, you know, re related to that, uh, I don't know. Um, 
I, I don't know if I'm going to watch it or not, but the new Lord of the Rings is is getting ready to hit Amazon Prime, or maybe it, it, it's already up. I don't know. I haven't I haven't checked. I don't think it's up yet. It's it's coming really soon, and it's supposedly like the most expensive TV show ever made. And there was this whole bidding war um, with the Tolkien estate, and so talking about like you know rights after you're after you're dead, like you never know. And like th this thing could generate you know millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. There's there's a lot of money at stake, and. Uh, the one thing I heard that made me chuckle a little bit was someone said, if this isn't a big hit, I'll, your, the price of laundry detergent's going up. Because <laughs> uh, Bezos, <laughs> you know, we get everything from Amazon, so this thing better be a hit. Yeah, I, I wanted to bring it up because a lot of these things tend to, to slip through. And, and, you know, like this with the Tom Clancy thing in particular, you know, it's, it's one or two sentences. And if you go on Google, you can actually find it because there's websites that are dedicated to following this. But it was basically something that was just in that one of his, his film or TV contracts. Um, yeah, I'm kind of running into it on a smaller scale right now because the 4MK series is with a studio and that, that's something that's underway. Uh, I wanted to use one of the detectives that's in the 4MK series, a guy named Frank Poole. He's an FBI agent. Um, I just I wanted to do a quick cameo. Um, you know, and have the guy just appear in the book that I'm working on now. And it's, it's literally, you know, half a chapter or something like he's just kind of in and out. Um, but I just figured for readers, it would be fun to, to see that. Um, so I ran it by my agent. She quickly looped in the film attorney that, that I work with. And he said, nope, you can't do that. If you do, then it's considered an author sequel to something, something, something. <laughs> and because of this clause, then the, the studio has first rights to it. And, you know, like all this stuff. And, you know, like I, I just, I never thought of it. Um, but you know, that that's in my contract. It's, it's signed. So there's nothing I can do. So I had to go and change that character name, but you know, a lot of hand, a lot of hands, you know, in, in certain buckets, you know, even for somebody like it's not even produced yet, but you know, you still have to deal with it. Wow. Wow. Those it's, are small things you just don't think about, I guess, until you're, uh, you're in those positions or, you know, get that advice from somebody. So yeah. Thanks for yeah. bringing that up. That's interesting. So speaking of advice, I went out to my editor um, and asked her a question. Let me see if you guys know the answer to this. Do, do you use double punctuation at all in, in any, like your writing? So like a question, double? Like a, yeah, like a question mark with an exclamation mark, you know, like using two different forms of punctuation. To I don't think emphasize. I've ever done that. No, the only oh. time I would ever do that would be if it was like a character sending a text message or something like that. I might do something like that, but otherwise like just in regular text. No, I don't do that. Yeah, so I, I had a character in the story I'm working on now where they yell a question, um, you know, so I, I wanted to make sure I got it, got it across that they were actually yelling it without having to put some kind of weird, you know, tag at the end. Um, but I wasn't sure what would come first if you used two punctuation marks, the question mark or the exclamation mark or the end of the sentence with the exclamation mark and then the question mark. Um, and apparently there's a rule for this. So you basically the first piece of punctuation falls in line with whatever the sentence is and then the exclamation mark goes on the end um, to basically emphasize the, the, the question itself. So I don't know. I, I got schooled today because I honestly thought it was the other way around. That's that's interesting. I never ever thought about that. JD is just a fountain of education today. He just, <laughs> I mean, he's just bringing it all. He's bringing his A game. Well, that, that's all I've got. So <laughs> honestly, if I came across that in a book, I'd put that book down. <laughs> I'd be oh. like, that just it looks too awkward. They should have used a dialogue tag. <laughs> well, you know, there's there's different ways to do that sort of thing. Um, you know, like a lot of authors will just put like that sentence in caps. You know the whole thing with the question mark at the end. You know, there, yeah, there's I think different that ways. Looks stupid too. Yeah. Well, <laughs> how, how would you do it, Zach? You've got a character yelling a question. How would you do it? I would use a dialogue tag in that instance. I would do a question mark, and then I would say like, "She yelled" or "She shouted" or something like that. Like that's okay. what I would personally do. Okay. But 
that's just that's just you'd probably you'd put my book down in there. He should have used double punctuation or put it in bold. Yo, what's this dialogue tag doing here? I'm not hey, reading what's this. What's the city doing? Amateurish dialogue tags. Who uses those? So I actually, when I go back through on my my final pass, I I try to take out almost every dialogue tag. Like I've got no problem yeah, putting them in Jay on a first Thorne draft. Thing too. Yeah, well, it's 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 a many author thing, uh, and and I, I actually there's a book. Um, I think I talked about this before. It's called The Narrator, um, and it's it's about it's basically misery, but with narrators. So somebody kidnaps a, a narrator, um, and forces him to narrate an audio book, and and the book itself is narrated by Scott Brick. You know, who's obviously one of the, the best out there. Um, and one of the things that they touch on in there is as you know he's reading, and I'm pretty sure this is Scott Brick. You know, feeding the author this information because they're friends. Um, he actually when he narrates, he cuts out the dialogue tags. Um. You know, which is something I, I never really thought of before. But if you listen to an audiobook, it's pretty rare that you actually hear somebody, you know, he said, she said, you know, a lot of those dialogue tags tend to disappear. Yeah. Um, so that's really the narrator taking them out. Um, you know, so I try to do that with my own writing. I, I try to either, you know, see if it can just the sentence can exist without it, you know, just draw a line through it and see if it still works. And a lot of times it does, as long as you can tell who's saying it. Um, and if, if it doesn't, if you, you know, you've got multiple people in the room and you need to point out that it's a particular character, just try to replace that with some, you know, form of action or, or something. Thing, you know a little bit more definitive than just a little dialogue tag just, just to be clear i'm very scarce with dialogue tags in my writing i did it but like you said i think if you had to use double punctuation that would be an instance where i would use one per personally well, that's just that's just me not not but to call I, but you i'm out, very but scarce I, with it too that I've, totally I've, makes sense i've got a copy of deep south deep south right here where i took a highlighter and just i don't know through. what deep south is deep, oh, i wrote a book called dead, dead south dead is south. that what you're oh. talking about yeah you all know? right well I'll, I'll i'll leave you alone <laughs> you just you just dissed me without Man, even I, knowing it i i, I tried it's it, it's it's okay also i think uh i'm figuring out really quick what your book of the year is and i'm going to tell all the audiences the audiences. I'm going to tell the audience <laughs> that every time JD mentions the narrator, they need to take a shot. Cause I think this is like the third episode in a row. You've mentioned that book. <laughs> it, it, it was, it was good. Um, you know, it, it, you should definitely check it out. I, I don't know if, it, if it's even out yet, but I'm, I'm a big fan of anything that Scott Brick does. Oh, he's amazing. Yeah. He, he's, he's an amazing narrator. So take a shot. So, Zach, what are you working on these days? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm JD, working on the next Deep on? South book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm working on deep set now that no that's pretty much it i the uh i mean i have really no no big news update i did um i'll, I'll give a little shout out here because she listens every single week but and because i don't get to hang out with authors that much these days but i got to see honore quarter twice last week which was which was awesome i, I love honore so um i got to see her twice last week which was really cool so and like I said, she listens every week. So big shout out to her. Nice. But uh, other than that, yeah, I'm working on Deep South. And <laughs> now I'm just going to call it that. I'm going to go get all the covers change and everything. Yeah, I, I honestly think you should. It's a better name. Uh, well, de Dead South, it's a zombie book. It's actually a way better name. So key, keywords, baby. But uh, but anyways, no, that's pretty much it. So uh, what about you guys, JD? Uh, I'm just writing one-liners trying to make fun of you. That's, <laughs> I, I, I spent my entire week just trying to come up with stuff to, to ad lib on the on the show. Watching trailers for crappy Winnie the Pooh movies in your theater. Yeah, pretty much. I, I, I actually I circled back and I started watching uh, Mr. Mercedes because um, I, I, I haven't seen that yet. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much run out of stuff to watch on, on Netflix and everything. So I'm, I think I'm about four episodes into that. Um, and it, it's pretty good. Um, my wife and I are, are finally wrapping up Ozark. We've got like 10 minutes left in the final episode, um, which is a, a phenomenal show. I'm going to really miss that one. You stopped with 10 minutes left? 
she's she's got an alarm so she gets up at five every morning to to write and exercise and stuff like that so like she cuts out of the theater at the exact same time every night uh regardless of where we are in a show that that's why we're still watching ozark when it's been done for you know however number of months at this point as soon as that alarm goes off do you have like people in the little vest and hats come out and start sweeping (laughs) turn the lights off (laughs) turn the lights on turn the overhead lights on (laughs) <laughs> I may have to try that. <laughs> it's gonna be your daughter soon. That's gonna be she's gonna have to wear that costume. She's too busy going to school. God, so she's she's she'll love she's loving the kindergarten thing. Like I was she gonna say, even, how's that going? Yeah, she doesn't even want to come home. Um, you know, like they have a recess that like class ends technically at two forty five, and then they go out and have recess, and then you can kind of pick them up, and you know, we just walk over there and get her. Um, I think my wife got home at almost six o'clock the first day. Like she didn't want to leave the playground. Um, yesterday oh, was cool. like five something. Um, and yesterday she came home with like two of her friends from kindergarten, and she's like, "Mama, we're having a sleepover." You know, like we didn't even know where their parents were, you know, cause we're like, we're, we're, you know, we're right there by the school. So like, they just, they just walked over here. Um, so my wife had to track down the, the parents that have these kids picked up. And then we had to explain to our four-year-old, well, you can't have a sleepover, you're four. Um, and you can't have a sleepover because it's a school night. And all of that turned into a lot of tears from all three four-year-olds. And yeah, that was, that was fun, but she's, she's loving school. And, um, I'm, I'm thrilled about that. Now, and meanwhile, the parents are like, where are our kids at? Oh, I think they went to the crime author's house over there. <laughs> yeah. I think that's yeah. where they're at. <laughs> the, the, the scary guy with the cemetery in the backyard. They're in the theater watching Hellraiser. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We better, we to, better start this show. I gotta. I have to start bringing popcorn, man. This is, this is, you guys are pretty entertaining. I just sit back and let you go at each other. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm doing well. I, um, been working on a few things, you know, not publicly talking about, but making some progress. And uh, the kids are back in school and back in the routine. And um, my wife had an event, so she's not in, <laughs> she's not in the place today, <laughs> which uh, is kind kind of nice. And she never listens to the show, so I don't have to worry about saying that. I was on, gonna say like an like an event, like she's going to event. She had a cardiac event. Like, what, <laughs> <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> Uh, no, she's, uh, she's in, in sort of like event planning coordination now and oh, she had cool. to, she had to go cause otherwise she, you know, she's remote like 90% of the time. So, um, uh, I'm, I'm kind of like JD was a few weeks ago where I'm like, oh my gosh, I have this whole place to myself for like an hour and a half. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of enjoying that. It's all dude. Being back in the regular routine is like when you have kids and stuff, it makes such a huge difference. It like does. It, I, I was actually um, talking to our buddy T.W. Piperbrook. He, we were sending some video messages back and forth earlier. And uh, he was he, his kids just went back to school today. I, I guess up in the Northeast, you guys go to school like way later than we do down here. Because like my, my daughter's been in school since August 8th or something like that. Um, but, uh, he, yeah, he was out on a plot walk, his first one in months. And he was so excited <laughs> to like just be back in his regular routine. So it's awesome when you can when you, when we have our routines back. No doubt. I will totally, totally agree with that. Well, what do you say? We take care of some business and then we'll get to our guests for the week. I want to give a nice shout out to our wonderful sponsors over there at Kobo Reading Life who empower you, the author, to take your self-publishing career into your own hands. You know, with Kobo, you set your price, you keep all your rights, and there's never any exclusivity agreement. So if you're interested, use the link in the show notes or head on over to KoboWritingLife.com. J.D., who's up uh, this week? All right, this one's going to be fun. We've got Anthony Horowitz. Uh, He's here to talk about his latest thriller. It's called With a Mind to Kill, uh, which is set in the James Bond universe. So if you're curious to to find out what it takes to write in a franchise like that, uh, you definitely want to take notes on this one. Here he is, Anthony Horowitz. 
Now, I understand that you received a human skull for your 13th birthday, but is it true that it, that was a gift from your mother? Um, it was actually, I think, Christmas rather than my birthday. I can't oh. remember which of the two it was, but it is absolutely true. Yes, my, my mother had bought it for me. I don't know what is more peculiar, the fact that I asked for it or the fact that she went out and got it, but I still <laughs> have it to this day. Um, it's just upstairs, in fact. No, I didn't realize that she she got you something that you asked for. So you, this was on your list of things you wanted. Yes, but you've got to understand, this is nothing to do with macabre sort of feelings about death or anything. I was very interested when I was a boy in the nature of who we are and where we are. And because I wanted to be a writer, I thought of myself as being inside this sort of peculiar capsule that was like, if you like, the spaceship, which the traveler, the brain, takes you to places in, your, in the world. And so I wanted to look inside. I wanted to see what, what it was like. And so that's why I wanted it. And um, uh, and I never did sort of silly things like, you know, putting sweet candles in it or, um, or you know, giving it a name or, or doing silly games with it. I was always very respectful of it. I, I'm very aware. As I say, I still have it. This was a human being. And nowadays, its use is as a memento mori. I mean, it reminds me to work hard, to keep writing, to, to do more words, to, to stop slacking because, you know, I'm getting on in life and quite soon I will look the same. <laughs> that is a, that's a very powerful token uh, of memento mori when you think about it that way. Well, we're uh, we're not here to talk about your childhood uh, gift uh, acceptance, oh but <laughs> but uh, you uh, you have just finished the the third book in in the in the James Bond series with a mind to kill. Uh, tell us a little bit about this book. Well, as you say, it is the third in a trilogy, and it is a trilogy because my first book, Trigger Mortis, began in the middle of Bond's career. It took place just immediately after his mission with Goldfinger. And then for my second book, Forever and a Day, I went back to the very beginning of his career, um, uh, Bond getting his license to kill and starting out as 007. Um, and so it seemed sensible to sort of finish it, to bookend it with a with an end of career novel. So now we're in 1963, and Bond is getting on a little bit. This, this follows on directly from The Man with the Golden Gun, and he even picks up on what Fleming wrote. And just to understand the book, you have to you have to understand that first of all, I'm talking about the books, not the movies. So I'm not talking here about Christopher Lee and and, and that particular movie. I'm talking about the books as written by Fleming. And at the end of um. Uh, what is it called? Um, hold on a second. Uh, you only live twice. Uh, Bond falls from a great height. He's hurt. He has amnesia. He takes up as a, a Japanese fisherman for a time. And then he tries to get home and wanders into Russia, where he is arrested by the KGB, who brainwash him and get him to kill M. And the next book, which is The Man with the Golden Gun, begins with this attempt by uh, James Bond to kill you know, the man he most admires in the world, M., and it goes wrong. But in my book, I imagine that they pretend that it has gone right. And he is uh, then sent back to Russia to pretend to be brainwashed in order to discover a conspiracy that is going to change the balance of power in the entire world. So that is the book in a nutshell. Uh, you don't need to have read the original Ian Fleming books to enjoy it, of course. But um, but that is where it sort of si is situated in sort of the context. I have to just add, if I may, that I, I'm different to other modern uh, Bond um, writers, continuation novel writers, because I've always set the books very much in the world of Ian Fleming, which is to say between 1953, 54 through to 1963. Um, William Boyd, for example, set his book in a much more modern, Jeffrey Deaver, it was present day. 
Yeah. And I, I will say you masterfully uh, captured Fleming's voice. And, and I feel as though these, these novels really pay homage uh, to that, that franchise. And uh, I, I, I do think you are in a unique situation in that you didn't necessarily continue beyond um, the, the original work, the original canon. You're, you're sort of in the middle of it. So what sort of challenges um, or advantages did you face in writing these books in the 50s and si- set in the 50s and 60s? Um, well, the main challenge was getting it right. I mean, you've got to do two things when you're writing James Bond. You've not only got to work out what somebody might have been drinking, wearing, driving or whatever in 1963. That's easy enough. You can look on the net and just find out what cars were around, what drinks were around, what, what jackets and pants were around. But but it's more than that, because what you've got to do is you've got to work out what would Fleming and therefore Bond have approved of. You know, what is the correct drink? What is the correct suit? What is the correct bottle of wine? You know, all the rest of it. So it's a question of getting not just the facts right, but the attitude right. But there is an enormous amount of research to do. And when I'm writing a, a, a Bond novel, I am endlessly stopping, which rather sort of annoys me. I like the flow of writing, but I have to stop just to check that every single thing fits with both the world as it was then and, of course, with the books, uh, because I'm very much in Fleming's world. So that, I guess, is the major challenge. There are other challenges, too, which is, I suppose, actually an even bigger challenge than that, is rising to the occasion, because Ian Fleming is an absolutely superb writer. I think people, a lot of people think of Bond only through the movies, and the movies are great, too, but the books, which are the sort of the world that I inhabit, are really, really well written. Nobody writes action better than Fleming. His his ability to write out atmosphere is also fantastic. To get inside Ian Fleming, uh, to get inside his characters, Bond's head, he does that extraordinarily well uh, as well. So just upping my game because I don't want to, these books to be by me. I want them to be the books that Fleming might have written if he was still writing now. Um, so so it's suppressing my own instincts and trying to do what he does, and that's a challenge. And then I guess you 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 will always end up with the fact that the attitudes in the 1950s and 60s when Fleming was writing have changed a great deal. And there are modern sensitivities to consider, particularly with relation to women and to the role of women, to xenophobia, racism and all that sort of stuff. Um, I would defend Fleming. I don't find him an offensive writer in any way. But some of the characters and the tropes that he wrote about, which were very normal back then, now feel a little bit dated and possibly um, contentious. So that's another challenge. Um, But, you know, talking about challenges just reminds me that when I write the books, they are a giant pleasure. I'm not sitting there going, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? I'm having a wonderful time. I love writing them. The Guardian said that your Bond novels purr along with the sleek assurance of an Aston Martin, which I thought was a great way of, uh, of uh, complimenting you on pace. Uh, are there specific things you do in the process to keep the, keep the, the story moving along at a good pace? Well, I think that if you look at my work over the last 40 years, I mean, that's what I've always done. I mean, I'm interested in pace and a book being a page turner and keeping the audience gripped. You know, I'm a TV writer as well, and it's the same thing. A television audience is very, very easily bored, and it's very—it's all too easy to reach for the remote and turn the television off and go to bed. And so I'm always saying, don't do that. Look what I've got up here. I've got another murder. I've got another clue. I've got a development, something that will surprise you. So to me... The, the, the act of writing is one of, of retention. It's holding the audience and, and keeping them going. Um, and that's true of my Bond novels, but it's true of all the work I do, I think. Are, are there any particular strategies that you employ, whether it's in the Bond work or your own work, to do that? 
I don't I, I I'm not very good at sort of analyzing my own writing or anybody else's. I don't have any rules. I don't have a particular way of writing and I haven't had any influences. I've never done a writing course. I think the the single word answer I'd give you is immersion. When I write a bond novel, I'm in that world. I am standing shoulder to shoulder with Bond. I am, you know, I'm I'm seeing what he is seeing. I'm smelling what he's smelling. I taste that martini. I, you know, I'm in the book and I can write for 10, 12 hours at a trot and not even notice that the world is here because it's total immersion. And that, I guess, is the answer to your question. It's as simple as that. There are, you know, there are other things, you know, there, when you're doing a pastiche of somebody, uh, you know, trying to emulate their writing style, you analyze what it is that makes their work uh, work. And um, so there are tricks that I play, um, types of language that I use, um, staccato sentences when the action is getting faster, um, uh, that sort of extraordinary acid, I don't know if you know that word, but it's in the Fleming novel, that sense of detachment. Sometimes, you know, sometimes you're right with the character, seeing what he's seeing, but in a more melancholy moment, you're sort of, he's standing in the corner of the screen and you're just looking at the landscape and he's slightly lost. So there are sort of techniques and tricks in it. But as I say, the main thrust for me is one of just, of just keeping the, keeping the reader really hooked by being hooked myself. Yes, yes, that makes uh, perfect sense. In your sense of immersion, does that mean that particular project is the only thing you're working on at that moment? Not necessarily, but it will be day to day. I tend not to do two projects in one day. At the moment, I'm writing three different things, which is sort of quite nightmarish, actually. I'm doing a TV series for Sony. I'm doing the next um, uh, novel in my, in, my, in my commitments to writing books. And I'm also plotting a novel, which I have to start next year. So that's three projects at once. But today, I've only done one of them. I, don't, I try not to jump from one to the other because it's too, it, 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 it interferes with my creative thoughts and process. Yes, yes. There, there seems to be a spectrum of, uh, in, uh, for authors of people who plot or, or plan a lot of the story versus people who just kind of show up and, and discover it uh, along the way. Where, where would you fall on that spectrum? I'm falling between the two. I like to keep myself surprised, but all the time I'm making notes. I mean, like this, this is a sheet of paper with sort of just notes of, uh, of, of a book I'm writing at the moment. You can see, but I'm already, this is, this is, this is half the book on one sheet of paper. And I'm always doing that too. I take copious notes. I spend a lot of time structuring. I like to start a book sort of knowing about 60 to 70% of it. That leaves me 40% to 30, 40% to surprise myself and the reader. Uh, are, there, are there specific things in that, that's, that 70%, specific plot points or uh, characters that you, you feel like you need to know before you start the drafting process? <sighs> What I need, first of all, is a shape. Every novel to me has a shape. Um, uh, and it's it's sort of the shape of the novel comes to me. Like, for example, the one we're talking about with A Mind to Kill. You know, it, it was it was obvious to me that, that it was going to take place largely in Russia because that was the demands of the story. And then I realized it was going to be a three-part novel, that it was going to be London, Moscow, and then Berlin, East Berlin. And that then led me to sort of three separate interludes. And Fleming, of course, liked a three-part structure. My favorite is Goldfinger, uh, Coincidence, Happenstance, American uh, Enemy Action, which is just, you know, just great. It makes me smile. So I was happy with that shape of it. You know, my 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 novel, um, um, Moriarty, if you've ever read it, I always saw it as a Mobius strip. I can't quite explain why that would be the case, but that was how it was, a novel that turned in on itself and did something impossible. 
Um, uh, so once I've got the shape, that's that's a start. Then I start to fill that shape with the sort of the the action, if you like, the sort of you know where is going to be the the murder or the chase or the or you know the surprises and all that sort of stuff. And as to sort of the characters, they sort of they're there from the start. I mean, you know, I know Alex Ryder very well. I grew up with Bond. I've I, ditto Sherlock Holmes. Um, Hawthorne, I'd written about him for many, many years before I started writing books about him. So these are characters who are very close to me, and I don't have to sit down and puzzle about them. I think that a character, a character speaks to you. I think that's the only best way I can put it. I don't create the character. The character tells me about himself or herself. And if that sounds pretentious, because I don't like writers who say, oh, my characters are out of control, I never know what they're going to do. That's not true. I know everything my characters are going to do, but only because I know them so well. Oh, yes. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, I, I can definitely relate to that. Uh, mechanically, are, do you have a, a particular time or place when you, uh, when you write? No, I write all the time, anywhere, everywhere, planes, trains, cafes, cemeteries, on the beach, park benches, on this table where I'm sitting now. I've been writing here for about 10 hours today. Um, London, the countryside, abroad, anywhere. I, never a day goes by when I don't write. Ah, oh, lovely. Uh, is there a particular uh, program or tool or anything that you like to use to organize it all? Not really. I try to avoid routine. I try not to, I don't do word counts. I don't start at eight o'clock and do so many words by lunchtime. Uh, again, going back to that idea of immersion. I'm a writer. You see, I think that some writers make the mistake, if I may say so. Every writer is different. And I, and I don't, I don't have a, you know, I, I don't know anything more than anybody else. In fact, my favorite saying is William Goldman's famous, um, sentence, nobody knows anything. So, you know, everybody to their own thing. But but I think that, that for me, you can look, you can think of yourself, I'm an author, and here's my book. And how am I going to create that book? How am I going to plot it? How am I going to structure it? And to me, that's a mis- that doesn't work for me, because I don't like to be outside the book. I don't think of the book as an object that's over there, and I've got to somehow create it. I am the book. I'm in the book. The book is me. Christopher Isherwood wrote a wonderful sentence at the beginning of Goodbye to Berlin, which is, I am a camera. And I love that sense that what I do is, is that I take the first page of my novel and I don't think about the structure of the words. I think, what am I looking at? What am I seeing? Where am I? Where's the camera? You know, so, so um, in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the opening of, of With a Mind to Kill, I can't actually even know. How, yeah, in the, that, the camera is high up above a cemetery. And it's it's closing in on, on these two characters who are arriving for the cemetery and who are going to have a conversation. And then you're going to cut to the hearse coming down from the hospital. So it's all visual. It's all very much, you know, I, as I say, I write TV and film. And so I have a very visual sort of mind. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, you've had a, a, a lot of experience in, in TV and film as well. Uh, do you, are there things that you do differently for your novels versus your, your television or screenplays? Well, of course. I mean, you know, apart from anything else, there are things I can do in my novels I can't afford to do in television and film because, you know, it's all very much budget driven. But, you know, there, there are massive differences in writing a screenplay and writing a book. But but I'm still more drawn to what makes them similar. And that is that sense of pace, excitement, immersion, uh, of not letting you go, of surprise, of of of, of a ticking clock, of tricks, um, of magic, if you like. I love magic. There's a lot of magic in my books. Again, I mentioned Moriarty, uh, which I think is one of my favourite books by myself because the it's such a sort of a twisty and the, you know the surprise at the end of the book is so shocking. And that was all inspired by a magic trick, a card trick that I you know that I learned when I was a kid, uh, and and I adapted it for for a, a book. Um, so. 
I forget what your question was now, but um, that I think is the answer. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, so related question to the, the, the screenplay and the, and the TV writing, uh, generally speaking, that's more of a collaborative effort, maybe a team of writers. Uh, do you work alone in, in those instances or do you, do you have others you work with? I'm not good at collaborating. I'm too <laughs> single-minded. I'm too sort of confident. I'm too sure of myself. Perhaps these aren't good things to be, but I've been writing for a very long time. I know what I want and I'm not good at sharing that with somebody else. But I have collaborated. The Alex Ryder series, which is on television at the moment on TV on um, Amazon, um, was written by Guy Burt, and I collaborated with him to a certain extent on developing the scripts. They're all entirely his own work in terms of the writing. But nonetheless, we worked together. It was a lovely collaboration. He's a brilliant writer and brought things to the table that I didn't have, mm. including a wonderful understanding of how teenagers think and talk to each other and mate and, 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 and live. So, so I, and you know, the success of that show is much more down to him than to me. Um, but I've just done another show where I, another thing where I was working with another writer on a book. It was a disaster because it was just a conflict of wills, a conflict of, of you know, who shouts loudest. And I didn't like that. You know, I'm, a, I'm not an unpleasant person, or at least I try not to be. I try to be nice. Uh, I think it's important. I think the world that we know at the moment is full of anger and and violence and and hostility. And I try to to fight against that, to, to say that actually we're all in this together. Let, let's let's be nice to each other, which I may, may sound a bit simplistic, but that is sort of how I live my life. So I don't want to fight with people over, over collaboration, collaborations. In terms of TV, I'm married to my producer. Jill Green has produced a lot of my work and it's a wonderful relationship. You know, we have a, we have a very, very happy marriage, which has lasted 33 years. And we have a very, very happy working relationship, which has lasted about 25. And, um, and, you know, we fight sometimes and we, we, we tussle over sort of ideas. She's always right incidentally, but, um, <laughs> uh, but that's a collaboration I enjoy very much. Yes. Uh, she's probably always right. Yeah. Uh, I know that you've been, uh, you've been vocal a bit about, uh, sort of a, a modern crisis in literature, uh, and, and the access to it for, for people. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you mean, I'm not quite sure what you mean. Uh, so I, I was uh, reading some things that you wrote about um, the ability for uh, people of all socioeconomic groups having access to uh, literature. Well, I think this is a wider issue, of course. Um, I think that reading in this country, and possibly in yours too, is still a great socioeconomic divide. You know, if you look at areas in this country. I belong to a charity called the National Literacy Trust that has made a study of this. And there are areas of the country where life expectancy is shorter, where poverty is greater, where employment opportunities are smaller. And in those areas, you often find that literacy is way, way lower. And there is a very strong link between people who read and their status in life. I think a great many people who read are of a certain ethnicity and of a certain class and even of a certain age. And I've always thought the rate of reading and writing should be accessible to all, that um, that if you don't have books in your life, and I'm looking at you with all the books on the shelves behind you, and, and I think to myself that one in 10 houses in London have no books in them. That's a shocking statistic. But there are children growing up in one in 10 houses who don't own books. I mean, and I think to myself, how can you have a life which you doesn't, which doesn't, 
isn't informed by reading. And I think the way I look at the world and the way that social media has to a certain extent taken over our way of thinking, so that what you now have is a very binary way of looking at the world. Something is right or it's wrong, it's black or it's white, it's good or it's bad, and there's no in-between. You try being ironic or being sarcastic or being humorous even on Twitter, you know, it will get you absolutely nowhere. Whereas fiction does the exact opposite. Fiction is many shades of gray. Fiction is about understanding that somebody who is foul and unpleasant and, and a monster was once a child and was once a good person and has either chosen to be bad or has it had it inflicted upon them. And if you don't understand that, if you don't empathize even with the worst people on this planet in some way, you will never understand them and you'll never beat them. And that is of course what fiction brings to us, which is why I have championed the idea that fiction should be accessible to all. And unfortunately in the 21st century, we are finding more and more in this country with the closure of libraries, with less time given in schools to reading, with newspapers taking increasingly less interest in the books that are published every week and many other sort of things, that writing and, and literature and fiction is somewhat taking um, a bit of a battering at the moment. I am the prof I am an associate professor at a university in the southwest of London, where the entire English literature department has just been more or less shut down. And everybody's having to fight for their jobs against each other because literature and the humanities are considered to not be paying for themselves. But, you know, you grow up to be a namby-pamby author. What's, how's that going to help you? Well, I'm an industry that brought a great deal of money and employment into this country, and I'm living proof that that is not the case, that success in writing is, a, is an enormous industry. So anyway, that, sorry, you'll forgive that little splurge. It was your fault for asking it, but I, I hope that sort of answers what you were getting at. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you for that. I, uh, I I often get caught in my own thoughts, and I and I because I, I agree with you, and I wonder, is this cyclical, or are we are we heading down a path that we haven't been on before when it comes to the lack of reading resources? I don't know is the answer to that. I suspect that it is just a continuation of a process that has been going on for a long time and will continue to go on for a long time. Because at the end of the day, you know, especially during COVID, book sales did rise. I think my concern is always that the people who read are, be are belonging to one demographic. But for some reason, it doesn't break out. For example, I go to literary festivals in very leafy suburbs in attractive parts of the town. And I talk to more or less the same audience in every one of them. Now, I'm not describing that. These are wonderful occasions. I love going to them. I love meeting the people who want to come and talk about books. But it does bother me that they are in places like Oxford and Cambridge and Bath and, and, and Edinburgh and, and, and cities that are sort of refined and genteel. And, it's, and, and that to me is, is, is troubling only because I have gained so much pleasure from books and from literacy, but I want to share it with everyone. Yeah. Well, you and I share a, a, one favorite book. I wanted to ask you about this. Uh, Bill Bryson's The History of Almost Everything. Uh, definitely one of, one of my favorite books. When did you come to that book and, uh, and what do you like about it? Well, I had a sort of a, a, a spate of reading Bill Bryson. I mean, he wrote some wonderful travel books as well. And that one, that very dry humor, he's, a, he's an all-round good guy. His campaigning against literary is something I very, very strongly support. The fact that he has chosen to live in my country and seems to like it here, despite all our manifest failings, um, is also admirable. But that book, which is a sort of a standalone, I think is, is, is in many ways his best book, is it's just sort of... It's such a wonderful introduction to so many different things. I mean, it is just a sort of a, a light-hearted, entertaining, jokey, uh, jokey introduction to to what it says. Everything. Um, 
but written with enormous intelligence and research and, and, and clarity. It's actually been some years since I read it, and it is sort of in my mind to read it again. Mm-hmm. I'm between houses at the moment, so all my books are in store. But when I pull it out um, and you know, put it back on the shelf, it's something that I very much want to read a second time. Yes, yes. I found Bill through Walk in the Woods and uh, and, and his style and voice just hooked me from the beginning. And I can remember when the history of almost everything came out. That was that was a, a no-brainer, getting that book and reading it. So well, I have a very nice first edition of it, which if I ever get to meet him, I will ask him to sign. Ah, yes, that would be wonderful. Wonderful. Well, Anthony, I thought a great way for maybe us to to wrap up the conversation would be to for me to ask you uh, what you are excited about. You've been in this business in this industry for a long time. What's coming that that's really exciting for you? Well, first of all, everything excites me. I'm a person who's very easily excited, and I think that my love of writing. You know, the, I still remember getting my first book in the post um, for uh, uh, about. Um, oh, I don't know, when I was 22 or something, and that excitement of actually holding a book for the first time. Oh, no, it's not here. I was going to actually pick one up and show it to you. Because I got I'm going to say the same thing is true today. Uh, my latest book arrived about an hour ago, and a, a great crate of books turned up here, and I can't stop turning it over my hands and feeling it and looking at it. So books still excite me. I think the Hawthorne series, which is a book of, you know, a, a detective series, which I think run to about 11 or 12 volumes, before I finish. I have a next one in my head and I'm quite excited to write that. And you know, I'll tell you something actually, for me, the next book is what always excites me. You know, the next Alex Ryder, I've got a great idea for that now. Uh, the next Hawthorne, it's gonna be something that no one has ever done before. Effectively an argument between Hawthorne and myself as the book is being written. So the main character is arguing with the writer from beginning to end. I'm not sure that anyone has ever done that. They might have, but, uh, but for I haven't done it. So I'm excited by it. And, you know, the next interview, the next, you know, talking to you, I look forward to this. And incidentally, it's been a really, really great conversation and a great chat. So thank you for being so enthusiastic and so well prepared and everything. But, but you know, I, I'm getting older and my time is dwindling and I'm fighting that by just being excited about it. All right. Uh, this was this was a, a great interview. Uh, I love I love talking to these people with just decades of experience. Uh, it just it's it's like a masterclass. Uh, start with you, JD. I know that you're a big fan of James Bond uh, universe. Well, what would you think? Well, my my first thought was I just I need to get a British accent because like <laughs> you you literally you believe everything this guy says. You know, regardless <laughs> of what comes out of his mouth, he just he sounds like he just really knows what he's talking about. Um, yeah, I, I love the the original novels. I, I read all the Ian Fleming books when I was a kid, um, read them in order. And I guess in a lot of ways, it's sort of like reading Jack Reacher nowadays. You know, there was no Jack Reacher back then, but he was kind of the, the grandfather, I guess, to Jack Reacher in a lot of ways. Um, the books are very different from the, the movies. It's a complete, I mean, same characters, but other than that, I mean, it's a very different storyline. Um, and I, I just devoured them. I mean, they were just, because they're just this crazy cross between the, the spy thriller and just a regular thriller and a mystery and Ian Fleming is just so freaking good. Um, so if you haven't read those, definitely check them out. Um, you know, I, I, I'm always harping about going back and reading some of the classics. And, you know, that is the basis for a lot of the, the action movies. We, you know, Ian Fle- or the, the Jack Reacher books, um, Jason Bourne, all of that kind of stuff is, is based on Ian Fleming and what he did with, did with James Bond. Um, the, the biggest takeaways for me, I think, is one of the things that 
uh, he touched on is just writing in a different decade. Um, it's a very tricky thing to do. And it's not as simple as you know, a lot of people think. You can't just go on Google and you know, figure out what people were wearing, what they were driving, what they were eating, and, and kind of go with that. You know, he's taking it to another level. He's using the language that they used back then. Like if you read one of these books, like it reads very much like an Ian Fleming book. Um, you know, he's using this, the same language that, that Fleming would have used. So I think that, that that's important. I think it's trying to, to mimic the tone and everything. Um, but at the same time, you know, you, you got to walk a tightrope. You know, these books were set, you know, Ian Fleming, you know, it's 50s, 60s. You know, there was racism. There was, you know, a lot of things going on that are very different today. Um, you know, so as an author, do you stay true to that? Do you write, you know, as if you're in that decade? Do you try to sugarcoat it a little bit? You know, I, I, that's, you know, there, there's different camps on that for sure. Um, I know for me personally, I, you know, if my character, if the story is taking place in 1950, I have them use language that they used in 1950. Um, I, I don't change it up. Um, a lot of other authors do change it, you know, so it's just, I guess it's, it's a personal preference, but I think it feels more authentic if you actually write as if you're in that decade. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Like, I, I would definitely lean on the side of authenticity. I mean, you have to, um, you know, when, when you're reading things like that, you have to understand it comes from that timetable, you know? So it's like, it, it's it's just the way things were back then, you know? So I think along what you're talking about too, I think it's really interesting. And, and admittedly, I've never read any of the Bond books. Like, I've seen several of the movies. And um, one thing I was thinking about as the interview was going was, like if you have, I guess I can ask you, ask you JD, cause you've read a lot of these books. Like, um, as far as like, you have these people writing bond in like different time periods and stuff. Now, what does that do to continuity? Like if he's writing books about bond in the fifties and sixties, and then people are writing later, like, I don't know, like, does it, uh, like, does that do anything with the continuity of the character or anything like that? Or to like leave more to keep track of or what? Like, I don't know. Do you understand what I'm asking? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it is different. Um, you know, so you've got the original Ian Fleming books, the stuff that Anthony Horowitz is writing, they're, they're almost like books that take place, you know, in between the Ian Fleming books. Um, so it, it's almost like they discovered another Ian Fleming book that, you know, should have been between this one and this one. So okay. like his books tend to kind of fall right in the middle of, of that world. Um, the Jeffrey Deaver ones are a little bit different. That's, you know, it's, it's more, more modern, um, different time frame. Um, and, you know, and the movies are a complete, you know, different world. And, and it depends on which actor you're watching in those movies. I mean, the original yeah. ones with Sean Connery and, and Roger Moore are probably the closest that you're ever going to get to the original Ian Fleming books because they were the, the first ones. They were based on those books, um, you know, but in today's world, you know, we've got the, you know, the, this latest incarnation. They, you know, loosely based the Casino Royale on the on the book, um, but they modernized it. You know, it, it took place in, in today's world. So they had to make a lot of tweaks based on that. Um I, I like the nostalgia of, of going back and, and reading that old stuff. And, you know, like you don't necessarily, I mean, there, there's gadgets and all that, but, you know, that was something that really came out of the movies, not so much from the original books. Um, and they didn't need it. I mean, it was all about this, about the story. Um, and, you know, I think that's why they, they've stood the test of time. That's why they've been remade over and over again. So I wanted to ask you guys about something that I, I didn't push into in the interview because that was pretty clear I didn't need to, but it, it got me thinking about something and I was like, this would be something good we could talk about after the interview. So Anthony said, uh, you know, basically he's not, he can't, he doesn't take like writer's courses. He didn't go to school for writing. He, he can't articulate his own process. He just immerses himself in it. And it, it kind of, it kind of made me think we're uh, back to, back to um, a question we've, we've tried tackling before, which is are good writers born or made? 
Uh, because if, if this guy just kind of, you know, he didn't have any sort of formal training as a storyteller, and yet he's this prolific and successful, like, what does that mean as far as talent versus skill versus, you know, I don't know. I just kind of an open-ended comment slash question. I, I think the, the real takeaway is you don't have to step into a classroom to learn something. Um, you know, he's, he's a very accomplished author, but it's really mainly because he's a very accomplished reader. You know, he's got a history of, of reading behind him. You know, he's obviously was extremely passionate about books and where they are. And, you know, he mentioned, you know, one out of every 10 households um, don't own books and things like that. Like, you know, that's where his, his head's at. Um, but, you know, I think by reading, you know, as much as, you know, he does, you know, like he's absorbed that structure, you know, the, the storytelling process, the, the framework, the three act structure, however you want to, you know, so he, you know, he may not think of his books, you know, as a three act structure, but I bet you if you were to sit down and map them out, there's, that's probably there. Um, you know, he, he understands that, you know, just because he's read so many stories, you know, the pacing needs to pick up at this point, you know, this needs to happen at this point, the twist needs to happen here, my climax needs to happen here. You know, he had mentioned his cadence and sentence structure, how he tends to, to go, you know, use fewer words and shorter sentences when he's trying to you know, bring a point across that's moving faster to, to break, you know, bring his pacing up. These are all things that he just picked up from, you know, reading people that really knew what they were doing. Um, so I think, you know, and if you go through authors that have been doing this for a very long time, the mo most successful ones are like that. You know, very few of them have had any real formal training. Um, I, I think it's a misnomer to think that you can go to college, get an MFA and, and churn out a book and all of a sudden you're an author and you know what you're doing. Um, if you're not a heavy, hardcore reader before you do all that, I, you know, I, I don't think they can teach this to you in school. Um, there is something that we talk about called the storyteller gene. I think that's legit. I think there's certain people that are, are born capable of telling a story. Um, and as long as you've got that, you can be an author because you can learn grammar, you can learn punctuation, but you can't learn how to tell a story. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I, I've, I've always stood in the camp of, I think the best way to become a writer is to read and to write. <laughs> it's just to practice it um, and, and, and keep getting better. And also I'll add to that, um, you know, I, I learn a lot out of just having conversations with other writers who are doing this day and day like me. For example, before the interview, when we were talking about dialogue tags and stuff, I mean, that was those types of conversations lead to, I feel like lead to me becoming a better writer, like having those sorts of conversations and, and opening my mind to, oh, like I should try doing this or I should look at this in my own sort of writing. Um, Cause I'm right. I'm, I'm right with JD. Like um, I, I don't think that necessarily going to school and getting an MFA is, is gonna, you know, I was having the same conversation with somebody the other day about going to business school. I'm like, you're going to business school. Like you're, you're not going to learn it until you're actually, you know, in trying to run a business and you're on the ground doing it, you know, cause you're learning at a school from somebody who's not running a business <laughs> and, and a lot like not to go too deep in that, but, but anyways, like that, I'm, so I'm, I'm the same way. Like to me, Personally, when I go out to actually like learn something about my business, um, you know, to, to read about or whatever, like to me as a modern author in these days, I, I sp I'll spend that time doing stuff that's more marketing related than writing. Because um, because, again, I feel like uh, instead of like reading books on craft, I just need to read books and and just keep writing and try to get a little bit better every single day. Well, I think a lot of that just stems from the process, right? You probably spent your whole life reading, so you learned how to yeah. tell a story because of that. Um, but you didn't spend your whole life doing marketing. You know, it's, it's a byproduct exactly. of, of, of what you've become. You've become a writer because of, you know, your, your history and your passion for books. But, you know, you have to market in this world. Yeah. So that's something you have to learn. So like to me, like if I had to go to school, gun to my head, like I would go for marketing, you know, right now, today. Um, I know how to tell a story, but you can always learn. You know, I can always learn more when it comes to marketing. 
Yeah. I also, Jay brought this up. I also love his um, <clears throat> bringing awareness to reading and, and, and stuff and having access to books. I think that that um, is, 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 you know, I, I can go, uh, you know, there's a library right around the corner for me. There's another one down the street, but I have to, you have to remember, like not everybody has that easy of access to books. And even beyond that, um, you know, we're moving in this world where, and I think you kind of talked about this, like Jay, when you asked him if it was cyclical or you were moving towards this, but all this technology that's kind of moving us away from sitting down and reading a book. I mean, Jay, you've even said, and, and, and I tend to agree with you, you know, you, you don't count audiobooks as reading because you're able to do other things. You know, you can like listen to an audiobook and do chores or walk on the treadmill, but when you're reading, it actually requires the discipline of sitting down and focusing and reading. Um, so I don't know, you, you want to add to that? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, I, again, I'm not, I'm not um, judging people who listen to audiobooks. Yeah, and I know you weren't. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I think any time, any way you're consuming books is a good thing. But I, I was listening to the, uh, the Huberman Lab podcast. It's amazing, very sciencey. But he had a, a guy on, and his specialty was like speech and sound. And I, I had no idea this was the case. He said, when we read, we are, uh, we are speaking the words as we're reading, um, but it's at such a low level that you, can't, you don't even know you're doing it and you can't hear other people doing it. But you're literally speaking the words as you read them, and that doesn't happen with an audiobook. So I do think there is something to be said for, for reading with the eyeballs. Yeah, and, and I will say too, like I'm not... <clears throat> Um, you know, I, I love audiobooks, like sp specifically like nonfiction, even though um, I, I've started to read more nonfiction um, th than I was before. But also I'm I also am like a really good audible learner. So no pun intended. Like I, uh, you know, a lot of times, like when I hear things, I uh, retain them better. So um, but like you said, there's also the science to that, but e either way, I feel like we're kind of going off on a tangent, which is my fault, but, um, but I, I do love him bringing the acts, the bringing the, um, attention to like just having access to books and stuff. Cause I think that that's as, as, especially as we're moving into this world that is becoming more, um, you know, younger people or younger people listen to me. Um, I sound old like you two. Um, moving more towards like, you know, platforms like TikTok that are very visual based and stuff. And now, you know, we're talking about virtual reality and all this stuff. Like, I think that just, you know, not getting away from sitting down and reading and for the reasons you talked about too, like the science around it um, is, is super important. Well, it's, it's strange if you think about it, because I, I, I can see a hundred years from now, there being no physical libraries anymore. I, I can see like the print book disappearing, you know, from, from that medium. Yeah, 100%, um, but, yeah. but at the same time, you know, like access to books has never been greater than it is now. You know, you can, you know, you can read them on your computer, you can read them on your phone, you can get them from anywhere. Um, but yeah, reading is still declining, um, even in, in that saturated environment. So I, I find that to be interesting. Um, I, you know, it's, it's, it's hopefully it's something that's changing. I mean, I, I just got an email from my, my daughter's teacher and she was explaining, um, like th they're buying some books from Schoolastic and she sent the, you know, the list over books that they're going to get. And like reading and writing is a huge part of their, their kindergarten, their, their training program. They've got daily journals that they keep and things like that. You know, to me like that, that is extremely encouraging. And I don't know if that's something that's been going on, you know, for, for decades and every kindergarten group does it, but to, to know that my daughter is going through that, I, I, I find that encouraging. Yeah, I've, I've, I've said for a long time that, you know, I um, I got really turned off by reading in school because of required reading. <laughs> and, and I really wish that schools 
would just focus more on like getting kids to read, even if it's not like a classic literary novel, than to like try to get force them to read stuff that like might turn them off from reading, you know? Um, so that's what I'm trying to do with my daughter is, you know, we've been reading these, we've been reading goosebumps and like Minecraft books and stuff like things that she's interested in, but I just want her to be excited to like sit down at the end of the night or whatever and like crack open a book and, 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 uh, consume story. So no matter yeah, what it is, that, that's actually a really good point. You know, like they, they kind of force feed these particular titles on, you know, kids and you know, every, every grade, I mean, all the way up through high school, there's certain books that you have to read. Um, but yeah, if they, I wonder what would happen if they actually just let kids read what they're actually interested in instead of forcing them to read something else. Um, that, that might change the, the entire dynamic. Maybe that's the problem. Who knows? Yeah, I know for me, like I said, when when I when they were like, you need to read these five books during the summer or whatever, like it, I was like totally turned. But if they would have said, hey, pick five books you want to read, that would have been yeah. different, you know, because I, I probably would have done it and I would have been reading, you know. So, but uh, anyways, yeah. So they, I'd I'd like I'd like to see that. So all right, Zach for president. There you go. <laughs> vote, vote early, vote often. Yeah, I I want to. Uh, just say, yeah, Anthony was a great interview. So we were so fortunate to have him have him on the show. The only thing is I'm a little bit envious that I, I don't have a skull. Um, so, you know, uh, maybe maybe I can pick one up or I can have my mom buy me one for, for my uh, for my birthday. We'll see. I'll put mine in your will and my. Will. OK. All right. Yeah. If you if you can give me yours, that that would be that would be really cool. Like your skull, right? Like you're going to die yeah, first and give me I'm your saying, skull. Yeah. OK. OK. That's, I'll yeah, make sure that's they keep a meant. beard on it and everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if you're allowed to mail that sort of thing. <laughs> well, he can just pick it up after my viewing. Okay. <laughs> they can just take it, get rid of it. I'll just take it, it home with me in a doggy bag. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're off the rails. Yeah, Who's we're totally week, off the JD? rails. <laughs> Uh, next week, we've got Martin Edwards coming on. Um, he's going to be here to discuss. Uh, it's actually a pretty unique project. It's called The Life of Crime. It's a deep dive into the history of mysteries and, and crime fiction over the past 50 years. So that should be a lot of fun. Awesome. Looking forward to it. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.